congregation, and, you know, sometimes themes do sort of emerge. And, and lately, uh, a lot of people have been talking to me about uh, is- an issue that I'm going to start a new series next week on that I think seems to be on people's minds. And I'm going to talk uh, for, for a little while, maybe this summer, on family and family relationships. Uh, first of all, everybody has a family. Some of us would rather not admit that we have a family. Uh, so, Michaela, did you raise your hand when I said that? Oh, you were saying hi, Uncle Glenn. <laughs> I said, I don't like my family. I want a new one. Gosh, I think your family is very nice. I like them, including your, your, you have a really handsome uncle. <laughs> um, I've been talking to a lot of people about You know, stress and strain in family relationships, whether it's marriages, kids, in-laws, all that sort of stuff that goes on. And so starting next week, I'm going to take, I don't know, a few weeks, five, six weeks, something like that. Kevin, are you ready? Ready to go, Kevin? And talk about family relationships. But I will take the uh, list of stuff I've got from you guys and look at those in the fall. Okay, last thing before we get into it tonight. Hey, uh, some of you, not all of you were here last night. We had the shareholders dinner for our Mexico kids. Fantastic. Something that I am uh, always blessed by in the life of this church is our young people. And, and, and really, um, I, I'm just so blessed and so thankful for from our high schoolers all the way down to Hudson would be the newest, I think. I, I, these kids... I love our kids. I, I love, at the end of service, I've, I've told several of you, and I tell other people sometimes, my favorite time of our service is right when it ends. Because usually about two minutes after we get done, a veritable herd of children runs in here. And, and I don't know what they're doing, but they all run around and laugh and then fall down. And it's just really fun to watch, and I love our kids, and I'm so blessed and thankful for our young people, and what I see happening, and, and to me, it's, it's deeper than maybe it sounds. It really is a, a spiritual reality. What I see happening is, is this generation of kids in this church really being brought up to love God and serve Him and follow Him, and it, and it, it floors me. It knocks me over sometimes, and there's things... Oh, what the heck. Sometimes there's things in the life of our church I'm not all that thankful for. But that I am. That I really am. And uh, tonight, I want to take a minute before we move on. And I want to honor one of our young people, if I could. So, Sam, would you come up here, please? Come on, Sam. Sam does not know this is happening. <laughs> Sam, Sam King, I'm going to give... I'm going to present Sam with a religious emblem. This is actually, Sam uh, is in Boy Scouts, and this is awarded by us to him, but he's earned it for the study and practice, the understanding and practice of his religion, of his faith. And Sam uh, received this for a couple reasons. Turn around so everybody can see. One is attending the seat class that our youth uh, completed a few months ago, and it's sort of a, what do they call it in the Catholic Church? curriculum, catechism of our faith. Thank you so much. I'm just so unused of our faith. But not only that, he serves so faithfully. And Sam shows up and helps out uh, with our, 
putting away food and putting up with me sometimes at our benevolence ministry. I see him week after week helping his mom carry him boxes in for the youth. So I just want to honor Sam. First of all, I will award you with your religious emblem, and I would like to pray. May I do so? <laughs> Jesus, thanks uh, for all of our young people, and I thank you for Sam. His heart to serve you and love you and uh, grow in you, and I ask that you would bless him and allow him to continue the path that he's on with greater and greater understanding and practice. In your name we pray. Amen. Bless you, Sam. Thanks, buddy. On to other things. Turn with me real quick. I want to read a couple verses from Luke chapter 12. Oh, happy Mother's Day. That's kind of cute, isn't it? Luke chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 13. Interesting dynamic here. Oftentimes, uh, there's crowds of people around Jesus, and sometimes we hear, hey, there was a crowd or a large crowd. We don't know. You know what does it mean when, when John or, or uh, uh, Luke or Matthew tells us there was a large crowd? At the beginning of chapter 12, Luke says, there was a crowd of many thousands who were following after Jesus. So he gives us some definition. Many thousands were following Jesus at this point. He's at the peak of his sort of popularity, and I think also his authority. He's gained some authority uh, in the lives of people through the demonstration of the kingdom of God. So that's the situation. Huge crowd, thousands of people gathered around Jesus. He's teaching them, and verse 13, someone in the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So here's what's going on. Jewish law dictates, and you guys may know this, some of you, that uh, the estate of a a patriarchal society, of a father, when he passes away, would go in its entirety to the eldest son. It's one of the reasons that the story of the prodigal son is so interesting in that clearly there had already been an agreement made between those brothers that they would split that inheritance. But the law dictated that the entire estate was to go to the eldest son. Didn't matter how many kids there were. Didn't matter if the oldest was a daughter or anything like that. The oldest son would receive the entire inheritance. The father couldn't change that. The only person that could change that is the the one who was going to receive the inheritance could actually say, hey, I'm going to divide this up. I'm going to split this evenly amongst my siblings or not. It was really, uh, as they say, the ball was in his court. So, what's happening here? Now, Jesus has gained some authority. He's got some popularity. Clearly, the younger brother here, uh, we don't know who he is, just a guy, shows up and is trying to persuade Jesus to use his position, his spiritual authority, if you will, to grant him his estate. To say, hey, I want you to go to my brother, tell him, cough it up. That's basically what he's saying. That's what's happening here. Uh, It's the law. People maybe thought that law was unjust. I don't know. But in any case, that's what's happening. Jesus responds, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, the crowd again, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Um... Jesus, this guy comes and 
wants Jesus to use his authority to get him what he wants. Jesus says, hey, look, I'm not the judge. I'm not, the, I'm not your lawyer. I'm not your attorney. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to give you my opinion on that. I'm not going to put God's authority on one side or the other of this issue at all. I'm not going to play that game. But what I will do is this. I'll tell you this. Hey, guard your heart against greed because I'll tell you what. Greed will tear you down, chew you up, and spit you out. It's a bad deal, and you don't want to go there. But on this other thing that you're asking me about, I, I don't want to play. I'm not going to get involved in that. It's not my place to make that decision. I want to uh, continue. Actually, I'm going to conclude a little series I've been doing on politics lately. I'm going to conclude that tonight. And it's been, I know, chopped up and broken up, and I apologize again for that. Um, but we've, uh, we've titled the series Kingdoms in Conflict. And basically, I, uh, again, I usurped that title from Chuck Colson, who recently passed away. Uh, but the idea is that there is a kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world is sort of symbolized there by the sword, uh, not just violence per se, but the reality that the kingdom of the world functions, it, it, it gains power by taking power and authority over people's lives and dictating what they would do. Conversely, the kingdom of God, radically different than that, uh, gains authority by the cross, Jesus sacrificing his life on behalf of others, and, to, and he gets his power from serving and, and really uh, you know, committing himself to them in different ways. So I want to uh, just sort of wrap that series up tonight. Uh, and, um, well, let's just pray. Lord, thanks uh, again for your word and your goodness and for leading and guiding us, for granting us wisdom and discernment. Pray you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us tonight and help us to continue to walk uh, as people of your kingdom. Give us eyes to see your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, I want to read to you another passage, and the next passage I want to read is not from the Bible. It's actually from a Christian author, very beloved Christian author, a guy named C.S. Lewis. Some of you have read C.S. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis? Okay, good. That's, that's good. Um, how many of you, I'm going to read from the Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read the Screwtape Letters? Very, uh, very, very, very interesting and I would say difficult book to read. Uh, and this is why. Screwtape Letters is written from the perspective of a demon. Screwtape is a, a demon, and he is actually an elder demon, a senior demon. And he's writing, the book is a series of letters written from this elder demon to a younger demon named Wormwood. Wormwood is actually Screwtape's nephew. And he's writing, to, writing letters to him, hence the Screwtape letters. And he's writing to him on uh, mentoring him, really, on sort of uh, the tactics of temptation on how, as a demon, uh, we work to pull Christians away from God. And what makes it hard to read is that everything is, ex because it's a demon writing about how to get away from God, everything he says is exactly the what it should be. So when he says, you know, our father, he's talking about the devil. And when he, everything he is, so you have to stop and really think, okay, what is he saying here? Because it sounds backwards, and it really is backwards. But it's very, very interesting and very, very insightful in terms of some of the things uh, that, tactics of spiritual warfare, the things that can be employed to pull us away from God. So, Screwtape is writing to uh, his, his nephew, Wormwood, and he's talking to him on this issue of politics. Now, um, Lewis was a Brit from Great Britain. He's writing during the Second World War. 
And so the climate in Great Britain during the Second World War was an interesting one. And like I think we might see uh, in subsequent wars from then to now in different cultures, Christians were on two sides of the fence. There were a number of Christians who were on the side of patriotism. Yeah, the war effort is what we need to put our prayer and our effort behind because we need to win and we need to throw out, you know, Hitler and the evil people and take everything back for God. On the other side of the coin, there were Christians who were saying, no, no, war is bad, war is wrong, we're pacifists, we shouldn't do that, that's not the way of the cross. And so there was conflict between those two things. And this is how uh, C.S. Lewis chose to address that issue in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Again, the demon is writing about the, the subject, the person, this Christian that the young man is going to begin to try to draw away from God, whichever he, his subject, adopts, patriotism or pacifism. Your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then, let him, under the influence of the partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, his word for love. He is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful down here. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtail. Powerful stuff, huh? Two kingdoms. Kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the world. Satan delights in oppression and in holding down the people of God. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a liar. He's the father of lies. There's no truth in him. And he controls the kingdom of the world with, at times, a very heavy hand. And he operates by uh, using power over people while God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, operates with power under. Now, I had said in a previous message that all governments are a form of, a version of, a, a dimension of the kingdom of the world because governments all function that same way. They all function by having power over people. Now, God uses the kingdoms of the world uh, to preserve law and order, to prevent chaos from breaking out. That, that's their function. And I said before also that some of those kingdoms do that better than others. And I believe that the kingdom of the world that we live in here, our government, is among the best. Uh, I don't know if it's the best. I've not lived in all the others. But from what I've seen objectively, I can say it's, it ranks high. We certainly do, I think, a fair job. But that said, 
we acknowledge a mixture of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God in all governments, including our own. There's some of God and then some demonic in there. The ploy of the enemy, as Screwtape points out, is to fuse those two kingdoms together and or if not completely fuse them together, to, to make the lines so fuzzy that they are, uh, you know, not a, you can't see the difference between the two, and possibly, possibly, to even make the kingdom of God subservient to the kingdom of the world. That's really what he was talking about at the end. Anytime we fuse together our loyalty to God with loyalty to Anything else, whether that's a cause, a nation, a symbol, whatever it might be, we compromise the kingdom of God. There is a uh, biblical term for that process, and the, the word the Bible uses for that is idolatry. It's idolatry. When, when our worth, our sense of significance, our value, our well-being comes from something other than God, we have entered into a form of idolatry. When, when my sense of being right, and I don't mean right just like right, not wrong, but when I, I mean being right, like I'm, I'm in right standing, I'm, I'm right with God, when I'm, when I'm in the right place, when my sense of being right comes from, let's say, being American rather than being Chinese or African or whatever else, or from being uh, a Democrat rather than being a Republican, I've entered into idolatry. This happens, uh, happens in the church all the time. People take more pride in, in being a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Vineyardite than they do in being a Christian. And sometimes they make that the issue. Happens theologically as well. The school of theology. Are Are you a Calvinist or an Armenian? I've had people ask me, you're a pastor, are you Calvinist or Armenian? First question. And I usually say something to the effect of, if you can define them for me, I'll tell you what I am. But what I want to say is, what the hell does it matter? Am I in trouble for that? Of course. Uh, Our value, our significance... Our purpose, our meaning in life comes from Jesus and relationship with Jesus alone and not from anything else. And, and we, can't, we can't derive life. We can't extract life. We can't gain life from other sources, only from Him. Only from Him. If I have, and I, I'm going to, this is a parenthetical comment right here. If, if I, and I, tonight, maybe not so much, but if you've listened to the, if you haven't, once again, uh, you can pick it up on a uh, podcast through iTunes. If, if I have at any time sounded like I'm picking on sort of 
the conservative Christian right. That's not my intent, all right? This fusion of the kingdom of God and kingdom of the world, I think, is much more widespread than that. An example of that, back a couple generations, not a couple, but a generation or so, about a couple decades back in the early 80s, there were pastors in the pulpit saying that George H.W., Herbert Walker Bush, Bush Sr., was the Antichrist, and that anybody who voted for him could not possibly call themselves a Christian. That's the kind of fusion that I'm talking about. Uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are two separate things. They're very distinct. And any time, I believe, any time we begin to blend those two things together, it really creates problems. And sometimes we think that's the solution to the problem, is to make the kingdom of the world look more like the kingdom of God, when really I think that's the problem. Now, this is not something new. This has gone on and on and on uh, for a long period of time. I do think it sort of is at a, at a sort of a fever pitch right now. And that's why I, I started this series to begin with, because I really believe that there's a polarization happening in our country politically that is frightening to me, and that Christians really don't understand their role in it. And that's why I brought this up. Uh, an example of that would be not very long ago, in very recent history, a very well-known politician quoted Scripture in a speech. Nothing new. Politicians have been quoting Scripture for a long time. This particular politician quoted John chapter 1, verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hath overcome it. Context of the quote was this. America is the light. Our enemies are the darkness, and the darkness will not prevail and overcome. We will win this war and overcome the darkness. In him was life, and that light was the light of all mankind. Uh, you know, I think America has some very good things to offer. But it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. Governments and countries don't shine light the same way that Jesus shines light. Jesus shined his light by laying down his life for his enemies, and no government is going to ever do that. Now, let me say, I was actually not all that surprised that this politician quoted the passage. What surprised me and what really concerned me is the fact that Christians applauded it. And I'll just say, if that doesn't concern you, it should. We began looking uh, in the last message in this series two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whenever it was now, at the consequences of fusing the two kingdoms together. I want to review the first two we went over, and then I'll give you two more, and then we'll, I'll quit torturing you. First one was fusion of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world diminishes our witness for Christ. The primary witness that we have for Jesus is this, our willingness to lay down our lives for our enemies. It's our willingness to bless those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek, to walk the second mile. It's why every week, every week on our welcome slide up on the wall, it says what? Thank you so much. Blessed to be a blessing. Who are we? We're the people of God. We're blessed. We, we know what it means to be the children of God. We have the blessing of God upon us, not so that we can revel in it, but so that we can give it away to other people. The purpose of God, the whole reason for our being here, is to share what we know of the truth of Jesus with other people. That's what it's about. It's who we are. It's who we are when the life of Christ 
fills us up and then comes through our lives and is exhibited through us into the hearts and lives of those around us. That's what it is. That's when and how Jesus says the world will know that he is who he is when they see that. That witness is compromised every time we, as the people of God, attempt to exert power over others. It's compromised. The witness we have is compromised. Second consequence of fusing the two together is that it undermines our missional focus. If, if we believe that America is a Christian country and everybody's already a Christian, then what's the point? What, what, we have nothing to do. We might as well go to the beach. We really think of a missional mindset, by and large, we have to go somewhere to be missionaries. We need to go to another country. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, we do that. We go to other countries to be missionaries. But my point was, we're all missionaries right here, right now, today. You guys are every bit as much missionaries today when you're walking around, doing what you do, going to school, going to work, going to the mall, as you are when you are in another place. Here's a little-known secret. Do you know that China, several African nations, South Korea, and I don't know how many other countries send missionaries here. Not Islamic missionaries, not Buddhist missionaries, Christian missionaries. They send missionaries here. Did you guys know that? So, it undermines our missional focus when we fuse the two together. All right, I have two more, and then I'm going to give you a brief example. Third one is that Fusion of the two causes us to put our trust in the kingdom of the world. I'm going to be really honest with you here. The power over, authority over operation of the kingdom of the world just makes so much sense. It's just common sense. The sword, lop off somebody's ear, we're done. Good to go. We got it. Power under the kingdom of God sometimes makes no sense. It seems utterly ridiculous so much, the Apostle Paul calls it the foolishness of the cross. The foolishness of the cross. That common sense perspective, when we begin to fuse that with the kingdom of God, what happens is we begin to trust in that power over rather than in power under. I was involved in, I wasn't actually involved in a conversation. I was listening to a conversation recently. A few people were talking. I was in the room and they were all talking. I, I, I was not participating. But this was probably six, eight weeks ago. It was during uh, some of the Republican primaries and sort of which person would be the next candidate. And uh, somebody had pulled up a, you know, on a computer screen a Yahoo article about something or another, and so that was the conversation. And the people that were in the room, every person there is a Christian and not a Christian kind of in name only, but these are folks who uh, go to church, go to Bible study, who are very, very committed to their faith. And in the context of the conversation, one person says, it's just, we have to make, you know, we have to get the right person in office because, quote, it's our only hope. Now, I chose not to respond at that moment because anything I might have said right then would have been like lobbing a hand grenade into the center of the room, and I just thought that isn't really a good idea. But I have to tell you that I was 
very dismayed. To hear a person that they say, that's our only hope. The hope of the world, and therefore the hope of America, and not because America is the chosen people or the best country or anything like that, but because we're part of the world. The hope of the world, and therefore the hope of America, is not in laws, is not in legislation, is not in having the right person in office. Now look, those are good things. Don't get me wrong. Good laws are better than bad laws. I've been in countries that have bad laws. Good laws are better. Uh, nice people in office is better than having mean people in office, okay? If you have a choice, pick a nice person. And I would tell you, vote. Vote your conscience because you live in a place where you have the opportunity to give your opinion. So give your opinion. But let me say this. Our hope does not rest in that. Our hope is this. In the church of Jesus Christ, being the church of Jesus Christ, that is our only hope. When we decide, hey, we're going to lay down our lives for our enemies. We're going to do what it takes to incorporate the life of Jesus into the hearts and lives of people that we encounter day in and day out, living like he lives. That's it. And I'll tell you, that makes no sense to the world. But it makes all the sense in the world to God. And that's what we're called to do and what we're called to be about. Fourth, uh, fourth uh, consequence is that it allows the kingdom of the world to set our agenda. The guy that I mentioned early in Luke comes to Jesus with an agenda, does he not? Hey, Jesus, tell my brother he's got to give me half the money. All right? He's got an agenda. Me or my brother. And I want you to put your spiritual authority on this issue. And Jesus says, you know what? I reject your options. I'm not going to play by your rules. You are not going to set my agenda. I've got another option. Here's my option is this. Guard your heart. Don't allow the kingdom of the world to take root in your heart because when it does, it's going to corrupt everything. Jesus does not allow the legal system of the day to define his agenda. But here's the thing. The church does it all the time. The church does it all the time. Kingdom of the world lays out the issues and the proposed solutions to the issues, and then they fight over it. And, and, and the, the church accepts that as the way of dealing with the problem. And the problem with that is that most of those problems are unresolvable by that means. Look, the reason these issues cycle up every election cycle is because they can't be resolved. G- good intention, good-hearted, well-meaning, reasonable, intelligent people will never all come to agreement on those things. That's why they cycle through every time. That's why they're not resolved. At least they won't be resolved by that means at all. That's not going to happen. So what we do instead is we polarize, we pick sides, uh, and the goal then is to win. And if for me to win, what has to happen? You have to lose. If I'm going to win, you have to lose. And so we fight the battle. Sometimes we fight the battle with bombs and bullets in a war. Sometimes it's a smaller battle. We fight it with words and slogans among ourselves, but we fight the battle. I'm right. You're wrong. We demonize our enemies along the way. The church accepts that as the way to deal with the problem and the devil way to the bank because that's exactly what C.S. Lewis was describing through Screwtape. Exactly. Pick a side. I'm going to take a minute or two, and I'm going to give you an illustration of this. 
And in doing so, if I seem a bit conflicted, it's because I am. Uh, I, I'm well aware. I'm going I'm to tread on the Holy Grail. For most of our lifetimes, for the last 40 plus years, so anybody that's over 40 was probably fairly young prior, and most of you here were not alive. Um, but for the last 40 years, no issue in our culture has been more polarizing and more at the forefront of that intersection between faith and politics than abortion. That may be changing right now, but the last 40 years, it, that's been the case. And, I, you know, even right now when I say that, it probably makes some of you nervous. And some of you may be thinking, okay, how is he going to tell us to vote on this? And you think that by what I say, you can probably figure out how I vote. And I say, when you do that, you're thinking in terms of the categories of the kingdom of the world. Uh, I'm not here to talk to you about how to vote. That's your business. Vote however you want. What I would like to do is something I believe to be much deeper than that, and that is to ask you to consider what might be the unique kingdom of God perspective on this issue. On the most polarizing, volatile issue in our culture over the last 40 years. In the kingdom of the world, you've got two sides, pro-choice, pro-life, and they go to war. And they go to war every four years, almost on schedule. Both sides are locked and loaded and ready for battle, and they don't talk to each other at all, ever. They talk past each other and do that while they're rallying the troops and demonizing the enemy, the other camp. The pro life side is yelling baby killers and the pro-choice side is yelling woman haters at each other all the time. No one no one is willing to stop the rhetoric and work together to accomplish what virtually every poll taken indicates that virtually every American wants which is to create a society in which abortion, if not completely unnecessary, is absolutely as rare as possible. Everyone wants that, but no one will work together because we don't gain our agenda by doing that. Another, uh, I'm going to make one more parenthetical comment here, just because. Furthermore, I, I think complicating the issue is this, that pol politicians, candidates, and parties come in packages, and so we are forced when we vote to evaluate and weigh out our feelings on abortion along with our feelings on the economy and war and education and health care and a dozen other issues, and so that's difficult to do, and very often I think you find that one candidate, one party, one platform doesn't necessarily endorse all of the things that you want. And so if, if, if I'm not misreading things, very often when Christians walk away from the polls, they're very conflicted. It's, it's at times difficult to make those decisions. But let me say this about the, the, the kingdom of the world agenda in terms of this specific issue. If the church accepts that that's the only way of trying to resolve this issue, 
here's what happens, is we end up inheriting the division of the world. We end up inheriting the polarization of the world, and I believe we fail largely to do the unique kingdom of God thing. Why, why, let me just, why do we need to accept that way of doing this? Why, why, why do we need to accept the, the, the world's solutions to the problem? What do we know? Well, we know that God is the creator of life. And, and, and that life growing inside of a pregnant woman is a God-created life. And that that life then has value, infinite, inestimable value in the, in the eyes and heart of God. And, 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 and honestly, we don't need to know any more than that. I don't need to know the metaphysics of that. When, when, when did that life begin? And what moment did it become a life? And, and, and when did the Spirit enter? I, you know, I don't need to know that. I don't need to know the science of it. I don't need to know the politics of it. I, I know this, that that life is infinitely valued in the eyes of God, that it's as precious as any other life, that God created it. And it's valuable to him just as valuable as anybody else's life anywhere else. And, and, I know this. I, I, I know that, that I, I don't need to know the history of that mother. I don't need to know whether she was promiscuous and got herself into a mess, whether she was a victim of rape or whatever else happened. I don't need to know any of that. What I know is Jesus died for her. Jesus died for her. And, and that she, too, is of infinite and estimable value in the eyes and heart of God. And so my job as a kingdom of God person, then, is to act in such a way that I uphold and ascribe that infinite value to both of those lives. How, how do I love? How do I serve? How, how, how do I lay down my life and come underneath those lives in a way to give them value beyond all else? See, here's the thing. Anybody can pick it. Anybody can carry a sign. Anybody can call names. Anybody can cast a vote. But who, who is going to lay down their life in such a way that it costs them actual time, energy, and money to love this person through this crisis? That's the question. I'll tell you a story about a teenage girl who became pregnant. And somebody told me this story. It happened far, far away in another galaxy. And so you don't know who it is, so don't be trying to think who it is because you don't know. Teenage girl finds out she's pregnant, and as it would be and is sometimes the case, she actually has a little bit of a closer relationship with her mom's best friend than she does with her own parents. I understand that. My son's friend slept on my couch for eight months because his parents didn't want him on their couch. So when she became pregnant, she was afraid to talk to her parents because in her definition, they were strict Christians, and she was afraid they were going to kick her out. So she went to her mom's friend. Let's call her mom's friend um, Dorothy. And she told her of her circumstance. Dorothy reached out and took her hand and said, what can we do? How can I help you? And the girl was afraid and told her she was considering an abortion. 
And Dorothy said this to her, look, I want you to think that through because abortion can have long-term consequences. It's, it's a decision that's maybe beyond your ability to make right now, but I also want you to know this, that no matter what you decide, no matter what you do, I will support you and I will walk through this with you. Dorothy also encouraged the young woman that she needed to go and talk to her parents, which she did, and they did, in fact, kick her out. And so she did, in fact, move in with Dorothy. And Dorothy made sure that she took her prenatal vitamins and got to her doctor's appointment and took proper care of herself throughout her pregnancy. And so the next question to be answered was, will you put this baby up for adoption or will you keep this baby? And Dorothy walked that decision through with her. And the young lady decided to keep the baby. And Dorothy said to her, you know, I, I want you to know, again, whatever you decide, I'm with you, I'll walk through this with you. But my commitment to you doesn't end when this child is born. And in fact, if you keep this child, I want you to know that I'll walk through that with you too. I'll help you raise this child. I'll be there with you. I'll support you. If you want me to, I, I'll, it would mean everything to me to be the godmother to this baby. And then uh, she worked through some legal issues. There was support issues, the boyfriend, some other things provided for her in, in a number of ways. And ultimately, Dorothy actually, she made a huge decision at one point that really is important to understand, is that she sacrificed a relationship with her best friend to support the daughter. But later on, as things settled down and the baby was born, um, Dorothy was able to, to be a bridge between them and, and bring reconciliation to the family. So here's the kicker. The kicker is that typically every four years when Dorothy vo votes, the ticket she votes on is a pro-choice ticket. But I would submit that Dorothy is more pro-life than most of us are in the kingdom of God way. And that that has little or nothing to do with how you vote. So the moral of the story is this. I will never tell you how to vote because the Bible doesn't tell you how to vote. And it's not my place. I will tell you what I think it means to live as a kingdom of God person because I believe the Bible describes for us how to live as kingdom of God people. And that's what I believe is my role here with us. The last thing I want to say is this, and, um, and, and we'll close. I, 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 am, I, I am very, very proud to be a part of this congregation. Because I really believe we get it as a people. I, I know of multiple situations over the years relating to this issue and others where many of you have taken that lay down my life, kingdom of God, power under, I'm going to serve this person, I'm going to walk through this life with them. And I'm blessed by that. I'm honored by that. And I think of that often. Some days 
it's hard to be in this position in ministry. It's just some days it's not all fun. But when I think of those situations, and I think of the way that I know many of you have responded in those situations, it causes my heart to be filled with God's presence. And I'm so blessed and thankful. So what I want to do tonight is something we don't normally do in closing. Would you guys stand? I just want to pray blessing on you rather than have ministry team or ministry time or anything like that. I'm, I'm just going to, we got three minutes left. I'm going to just pray a prayer blessing over you and thank God for you. Jesus, I thank you so much for showing us what it means to live and walk in your kingdom and how to love like you love and live like you love. And I'm blessed and thankful for these people and the way that they've done that, the way that they've helped unwed mothers, homeless men, broken families, the poor and the needy and the sick and the weary, and they've gone out of their way time and time again. And I just ask you to bless them richly for it, Lord, richly and abundantly. And Lord, if anything, use this to pierce our hearts to continue on, to carry on your kingdom and your work. That, Lord, we would be, uh, in the name of Jesus, shining a light in this community, in the lives and hearts of people that don't know you, that are far from you, that are uh, in need of the love of God in a place where nothing else can bring change or hope to them but you. So bless these, your people, Lord. Fill them with your heart and your love and your life. Multiply back to them, Lord, abundantly what they've given, time, energy, and money. Let them be filled with your presence and your spirit and the abundant life that you've promised. Walk with them, Lord. Give them discernment and wisdom. Let them hear your voice and see with your eyes and have your hands and feet as they continue to Move and walk and live and extend your kingdom, advance your kingdom everywhere they go. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy Mother's Day. Enjoy the sun and don't forget your kids.